All right, it's hard to believe, but just a week ago, last weekend, Rhonda and I were in Jerusalem. We were just winding up our, our, our second trip with people from Wheaton Bible Church, and I want to take a, just a moment to tell you that these are phenomenal trips, and there are three things in particular I love about these trips. And the first is I love helping you, the people of Wheaton Bible Church, walk where Jesus walked to discover the biblical history and the archaeology, to walk where Abraham and David walked earlier. All of that helps the Bible come alive, and I love being a part of that in your lives. The second thing I love about these trips is the ministry focus we have in these trips, the opportunities we have to hear about what God is doing in different parts of the world. We, wanna, we don't want to just merely do the history. We want to know what God is up to today in the Middle East. Let me show you this picture. This is a picture of three Palestinian believers. The man on the left and the man on the right left Islam and came to Christ three and a half weeks ago. Brand new believers. They are a part of a movement where over the last three months, just three months, 250 men and women have come to Christ. God is doing something incredible, and it's our privilege to hear their stories. The guy in the middle is part of the leadership of this movement, reaching out to Palestinians, and Palestinians are responding to the gospel. The guy on the left was part of an investigative Bible study exploring the claims of Christianity. He was beaten and jailed before he ever came to Christ. Got out of jail and gave his life to Jesus. One of the things I love about these trips is meeting individuals from a variety of different places in the Middle East and hearing what God is doing. I had the opportunity to pray on the phone with a leader in Syria. Our entire group prayed with them. And it was amazing to think what they're going through in contrast to the way we live our lives. So good for us to see how big God is and what he is doing in different ways. The third thing that is so cool about these trips is it's a wonderful way for a large church like ours to get small. So I got to baptize 22 people. I mean, Brian and Chris won't even let me baptize people here. I have to go to Israel to baptize people. And to hear their stories and to hang out for 12 days walking where Jesus walked, to read the Bible passages, uh, to talk about them. And by the last day, people are crying and people are sad about the thought of leaving because it's been such an incredible experience. I love taking these trips because I love being with you and being with you in such an incredible way. Now it's Mother's Day. And I would be remiss if I didn't say to you mothers, we are so thankful for you. We so appreciate you. But I want to remind you, your goal is not primarily to teach your children to be good. It's to teach your children grace. To point them to Jesus Christ who loves to forgive spiritual rebels and to transform us into loving sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And I say this because one of the main reasons our kids today are growing up and leaving the faith 
is because they are growing up in homes that are behavior-centered, not grace-centered, not gospel-centered, not Jesus-centered, where Christianity is reduced to a bunch of do's and don'ts. I mean, who wants to live that way? And where our kids uh, fail to learn that their standing before God is not a function of what they must do. It's always a function of what Jesus has already done and his grace. And so as I've said before, moms, I want to encourage you this Mother's Day, if you haven't read it, get a hold of Elise Fitzpatrick's book, Give Him Grace, that you might be a mother who's a purveyor of grace. Now, that brings us to our series on Jesus and the Gospel of Mark. Grab a Bible, open your Bibles, turn on your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. Today is an interesting story, the story of the rich young ruler. It's a story that ends badly, really badly. It's what you mothers do not, do not want for your children. Billy Graham said this is a, uh, once said that this is a story about a man that comes to the right person. He comes to Jesus with the right question, and he gets the right response, but he makes the wrong decision. Let's begin reading Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now I want you to understand, Jesus is rebuking him. This is a mild rebuke of sorts. Uh, Jesus is saying, don't call me good unless you think I'm God because God alone is good. And this man didn't think Jesus was God. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Jesus continues to speak. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Now Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to one another, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age 
homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now this is a tragedy. This man was an extraordinary man. Mark tells us he was a young man. Or rather, Matthew tells us he was a young man. Luke, in his account, uh, tells us that he was a ruler. He was a young ruler. He was a, 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 a politician of sorts, a, a statesman, a community leader, a leading citizen. Now, Mark, in his passage, tells us he was a wealthy man. So he was a successful man. He was a good man. He was a religious man. He was a lovable man. Did you catch Jesus loved him so this man is a widely admired man has everything going for him but he's a lost man and he comes to Jesus and he asks a telling question he asks the question what must I do to be saved not what must I believe but what must I do his question is basically, what work can I perform to merit my salvation? What service can I render? What project can I undertake uh, so I can add to my already distinguished resume of accomplishments and achievements that I have now saved myself? So this man was a good man, but he was full of himself. Spiritually arrogant. Uh, years ago when I was a kid, Carly Simon sang this song. It became uh, a, a, a hit, Top 100 in Billboard. Uh, and it's a song, He's So Vain. Some of you remember that song? When I was in high school, my si before I became a Christian, my sister said, Rob, that song is about you. <laughs> and she said that in a loving way all the time. <laughs> that song is about a guy like this. He's got everything in the world, and he's vain. So this guy didn't come to Jesus empty-handed. He didn't come to Jesus in humility in order to receive his salvation. He is the antithesis of what Jesus has just described about childlike humility in the previous paragraph. He is coming to Jesus full of his achievements, full of his obedience, full of his accomplishments. And so Jesus points him to the Ten Commandments, to many of the Ten Commandments. And how does he respond? He replies, done it. Been there, done that. I, I've kept them since my bar mitzvah when I was 13. Done that. Now, after this initial interchange, every other religious leader of Jesus' day, including most religious leaders today, would respond to this guy, man, you're on the way. Man, keep working. Keep performing. Keep accomplishing, and you will work your way to heaven. You'll get there. But Jesus doesn't. And what Jesus says next to the rich young ruler is totally unexpected 
totally radical and totally brilliant. Jesus says, the one thing you lack, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and come and follow me. Now we expect Jesus to say, the one thing you lack is faith. You're trying to work your way to heaven. You need to believe your way to heaven. You must believe. We expect Jesus to say the one thing you lack is faith, which is true. Uh, but Jesus doesn't say that because Jesus knows this rich young ruler could say, okay, I'll believe, but not mean it, not grasp the significance uh, of it because what he really believed in, what this guy really trusted in, what this guy uh, really used as the basis of his security and his identity and his significance in his life was his money. And Jesus always sees our hearts. And so here, when Jesus says to him, go and sell and give, Jesus is saying, I have seen your heart. And you don't have a behavior problem. You have an idol problem. An idolatry problem. Now there are two types of idols. There are surface idols and deep idols. Surface idols tend to be those things that are visible. The deep idols tend to be those things that are invisible. And Jesus is saying to this rich young ruler, buried in your heart is the surface idol of money, possessions, wealth. And it is being fueled by the deep idols of status and significance and identity. And you need to get, you have to get rid of your idols. You have to stop believing that money and achievement and status is Lord and believe in me as Lord. So when Jesus says to him, go and sell and give, uh, Jesus is saying, get rid of your idol. Get rid of it. And this is brilliant. John Calvin has said the human heart is an idol factory. My heart, your heart, idol factories. All sorts of idols going on. And here what our Lord is doing is exposing the rich young ruler's heart. And he invites him to stop worshiping his wealth and to worship Jesus, to stop treasuring his status and his stuff and to treasure Jesus as Savior. But he says, no. No thanks. I'm going to cling to my idols. Now you moms, the, this Mother's Day, the greatest gift you can give your children is pointing them to Jesus by you living an idol-free life. Now, because there's so much going on here, let me unpack this passage by making five statements. And the first is this. We'll be way down the road if we understand that the point here is not sell everything. The point here is submit to Jesus. 
The point here is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus alone is Lord. This man's problem was not that he didn't have any faith. His problem was that he didn't have any freedom because he had faith in the wrong things. And that's what's so brilliant here. Jesus sees his heart. Jesus looks into his heart. And Jesus invites him to turn and repent from his idols. So Jesus is not here teaching you must sell everything in order to follow him. Jesus is not here teaching that money is bad and that it is wrong to succeed financially. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus ever asked an individual to sell, to give away everything. And later in the New Testament, when Paul is addressing uh, the rich in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul does not say sell everything. Paul says be generous. Don't be conceited about your wealth. And make sure you fix your hope on heaven, not your stuff. So Jesus' point here with the rich young ruler is that I alone am God. I brook no rivals. I want you to completely and totally follow me. And if you think you can follow me and cling to your gods, you're deceived. Go sell everything. This is a lordship thing. And so the question we want to ask ourselves is, who really is Lord of our lives? I mean, who is the Lord of your life? I'm not talking theoretically. I'm talking functionally. I'm talking today. Who really drives your life? Who's the master? You see, Jesus knows if we don't submit to him and we don't follow him fully, pretty soon we won't be following him at all. This man had a money problem because he had a deeper idolatry problem. So Jesus says, go and sell and come and follow me. And I wonder, what do you need to go and sell? What do you need to stop clinging to? What do you need to give up and turn away from? You won't understand this passage unless you understand that this conversation is about idolatry. Number two, idolatry is flipping a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. Idolatry is taking an innocent thing, a neutral thing, or a, a, a good thing and turning it in to an ultimate thing. So it's taking um, uh, good things, uh, neutral things like uh, money and, and possessions, or intelligence, or abilities and appearance, or food, friends, uh, marriage, uh, relationships, a boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, uh, kids, sex, and, and turning those things into ultimate things and, and seeking in them to get what only God can give you. Now, idols can be hundreds or, or thousands of different things. 
and they change with our different seasons of life. But the one thing they all have in common is they become more important to you than God. Because you believe, and this is a subtle belief, because you uh, believe often subconsciously that your idols will make you significant. Your idols will provide you security. Your idols will be the source of relief. Your idols will be the source of identity. So not surprisingly, in Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 3, God warns Israel over and over against the idols of the heart. And that's exactly this rich young ruler's problem. Idolatry is voluntary slavery. You enslave yourself to something other than God. And it's tricky because it starts with something innocuous, something neutral, as I said, something good. And over time, that created thing becomes more important than the creator. The created thing trumps the creator. And by the way, you can figure out your idol by what you daydream about, what you talk all the time about, or conversely, sometimes what you have nightmares about. You can figure out your idols by what makes you angry, what ticks you off, <laughs> what makes you depressed, what makes you anxious. Uh, here with the rich young ruler, you discover your idols when you are faced with the possibility of losing them. And he walks away. Jesus is not trying to change this guy's behavior. He's trying to change this guy's God. Because your idols, left unchecked, are what control you. So if you're idol is your kid's success, your kid's performance, you'll be controlled by that success, by that performance. If your idol is always to be in control, then you will be controlled by always having to be in control. If your idol, if you're a student and your idol is uh, acceptance, then you're always going to be controlled by what other people think about you. If you're single and your idol is marriage, never mind that Jesus was always single and never married and perfectly content, you will compromise just about anything, including your sexual purity, to have that man or to have that woman. Because your idol is marriage. It's a relationship. And along the way, you will always be furious. You'll always be angry at people who interfere with you and your idol, who keep you from your idols. That's why today, for example, we see parents, I mean, uh, normally sane uh, people go crazy on the sidelines of their, their kids' games and yell and scream at coaches and, and refs. Now, that doesn't happen in Chicago, but it happens in other places. 
And what's going on is an idol's getting tampered with. Sometimes, not always. Third thing I want to say. Idols always lie. They overpromise and they underdeliver. They promise relief, life, happiness. Promise it in a bunch of different ways. But in the end, they can't make good on those promises and they deliver death. This, for example, is why marriages go grow stale, end up being stale after the kids have gone away, moved out. Now, little Johnny and Susie didn't realize it, but they were idols. They were the source of mom's and dad's significance and identity. And when they're gone, the marriage is gone because the idols are gone. This is why some people never recover from a job loss or a financial loss or a health problem or a death. Now, it's one thing to grieve, and and grief is normal and natural and necessary, but it's another thing to be permanently devastated. And permanent devastation is the response to the death of an idol. Because idols always lie. And the reason some of us today can't stop working, I mean, we can't stop drinking, or we can't stop gambling, or we can't stop eating, or we can't stop cutting, or we can't stop doing this, or we can't stop doing that, is because idols always lie and they keep promising more. And they never satisfy. Jesus says, go and sell everything. And in one sentence, he exposes the rich young ruler's idols. And he goes away sad. Sorry, Jesus. Can't hang around. Number four. Money is one of the most dangerous of all the idols because it's one of the most socially acceptable. And I think it's very interesting that Jesus repeatedly emphasizes the danger of money in verse 23, 24, and 25. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? How hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 24. Then in verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How hard, how hard, how hard. Uh, Money makes a wonderful servant but a terrible master. Now for some people, this idol gets expressed at one end of the spectrum by never spending any money, by hating to spend money, by always saving, always saving, always saving, by being a miser. The idol is money, but that's how it gets expressed. At the other end of the spectrum, that idol gets expressed The idol of money gets expressed by lavish spending. By always having to have the new and the bigger and the better, the more. 
Now it's the same idol, but gets expressed differently because it's the same surface idol, but different deep idols, and these two people can be married to each other, right? And I want to say to those of you that find it hard to give, find it hard to be generous, find it hard to give to the poor, as Jesus calls this guy to do, or give to the church, or give to missions, or, or, or give to, to family or friends who, who around you who have needs. Those of you that find it hard and, and who tell yourself, you know, when I have more, I'll give more. I want to say you're kidding yourself. Because it's not a, a, a money problem, it's a heart problem. It's an idol problem. And the most generous demographic group in the United States are the people who make the least. They give by far a bigger percent of their income than uh, people who make the most. It's not a money thing. It's a heart thing. Jesus is putting his finger on this guy's idol. Our, our inability to be generous, our inability to give, man, what is that? It's a worship disorder. Oh, got to do this, got to do that, then. No, it's a, it's a worship disorder. Finally, and I'll conclude with this. I want you to notice that according to Jesus, idolatry will be a lifelong battle. But the rewards are incredible. They're divine. They're out of this world. Now, I have my idols. And at different periods in my life, my idols have changed a little. And you have your idols. And idols usually exist in clusters, like power and control or significance and status, and I, I could go on. But what I want you to note is that the first step to freedom is to identify those idols, to name them, to bring them to the light, to confess them and to stop denying them, and then to turn from them. And whenever they rear their ugly heads, and they will regularly rear their ugly heads, uh, uh, man, you slay them, you put them to death. So Jesus is giving this rich young ruler the opportunity to bring his idol to the light. And he turns and he goes away. And he chooses the darkness over the light. The older I get as a Christian, the more and more I realize that the spiritual life, if the spiritual life is anything, it's a battle. It's a battle with my flesh. I'm a sinful fallen man. It's a battle with the world and all the temptations and it's a battle with the devil and the demonic hosts. The spiritual life, it's a, if it's anything, is a battle. Look at how Paul expresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. He's talking spiritually. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body, or other translations say I beat my body and make it my slave, so after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I beat my body. 
I make it my slave. Paul is speaking figuratively. Beating our bodies, making it our slaves, refer uh, to the battle of self-control. He's describing the battle of the spiritual life. Uh, the battle against idols. This idol's rearing its ugly head. Man, I've got to beat my body. I've got to make up my slave. I've got to engage in battle. I've got to call other people. I've got to get some accountability. I beat my body. Our hearts are idol factories. I don't know your heart. I know mine. My heart is an idol factory. And then at the end of the story, Jesus makes two promises. And the first one is, uh, it's just amazing. God can save anyone from any idolatry. Think about that. That's verse 27. Uh, Jesus says all things are possible with God. Now you may feel just absolutely defeated. You may feel so ridden with guilt over the decisions, choices you've made over the course of your life. You may feel overwhelmed. You may feel scared to death. Jesus says all things are possible with God. You don't have to make the mistake of the rich young ruler. Then, secondly, Jesus' promises in the last two verses, verses 28 and 29, that God will more than make up for any sacrifices we make along the way as we put to death, as we battle with our idols. Notice he says a hundredfold, a hundred times. Uh, uh, and he's talking spiritually here. He's talking about relationships in the body of Christ. He's talking about spiritual uh, blessings. Will it be a cakewalk? No, Jesus promises persecution. And then he concludes by promising eternal life for those who persevere. Now, what about you? What is standing as a barrier between the living God and you? What idol have you been clinging to? What idol or idols do you need to let go? Notice how Jesus ends. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the privilege of having these words of Jesus. God, would you speak to us? And now as we worship, would you by your spirit guide us and direct us